welcome to the Going Upcast Weekly Feel Good Podcast with a brand new audiobook for us to listen to. I go on a quest for a good night's sleep and we pay homage to one of the greatest musicians of all time. That's right, this week we sink our teeth into a brand new book. This time around, we will be reading Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. And I'm very excited for this one. Up Treasure Island is my second favorite film of all time. Which I guess by that logic, the next book I have to read is Hamlet, because my favorite film is The Lion King. I'm not reading Hamlet. But we start with Treasure Island, and because the chapters are so freaking short, uh, we actually get through the first four chapters in this episode. So that's very exciting. I go on a quest for a good night's sleep, and I hope you guys enjoy that. There's I get I get real I get real adorably sleepy in like halfway through halfway through this um this podcast. You'll know it when you hear it. And uh, we pay homage to Neil Peart and how incredible a drummer he was. And if you enjoy the Going Up Cast and wish to support the Going Up Cast, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go to patreon.com forward slash going up cast. We can become a $5 patron and get access to the monthly live streams, which act as sort of a QA thing. Or you can go to Going Cast forward slash store, where you can buy a mystery book or a custom audiobook reading of your choosing. And before we get too much more into it, I wanted to also announce kind of how the daily audiobook chapters are going to be going uh, moving forward. So with Game of Thrones having ended this past Sunday, and if you didn't know that, you can go listen to all of Game of Thrones on uh, on goingcast.com forward slash audiobook forward slash Game of Thrones, um, we will be uploading and should have already started um the Christmas Carol chapters that we read over the holidays will go up in just the audiobook form. So if you just wanted to listen to the story and didn't want to re-listen to episodes of the podcast, that option will now be available to you. And that will be finished uploading by Friday. And then uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a week off and start the next book for daily audiobook chapters, which is different from what we read for the podcast. Uh, reason being that I do two books is because with the podcast, it is public domain books. That's why we're reading things like A Christmas Carol and Treasure Island, books that anyone can read. And on the daily um, chapter side of things, we read things like Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. And the next book we're actually going to be reading uh, is not going to be Game of Thrones book two. It's going to be Aragon because I want to take a break from Game of Thrones. And I, as as much as I love Aragon, it's ripe for the picking for making fun of. So I'm very excited to get into that. So I'm not sure if we're going to read all the Aragon books because the best one's the first one. Um, at least that's my favorite. Um, so we're going we're gonna to read Aragon and that will start going up on the 25th of January, I believe. It might be the 24th, um, but it'll most likely be the 25th. So there is that. And that's enough of my waffling at the start of this chapter. Chapter podcast i'm not even it's fine uh, it's been a long day uh we're gonna get right into treasure island enjoy bad pirate accents and um one pirate that kind of sounds like foghorn leghorn hello everybody and welcome to the next book i shall be doing for the podcast unless you're listening to this after the entire thing has been uploaded to the podcast and then i uploaded it separately to the uh to the website in which case welcome to Robert Lewis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Now, I've never read this book before, but I have seen Muppet Treasure Island several times, so I think I know a little bit about uh, how this is gonna go. Now, 
The book itself is uh, is not particularly long. It's only slightly longer than um, A Christmas Carol, which means the chapters themselves are quite short. So we're probably going to do a couple every week and get through this book in relative quickness. I have a fresh pot of tea here, and I've been working long and hard on all of my Muppet voices and bad pirate accents. So, should be a, should be a pretty good time. Part 1. The Old Buccaneer. Chapter 1. The Old Sea Dog at the Admiral Benbow. <laughs> Squire Cherlani, Dr. Livesey, and the rest of these gentlemen have asked, having asked me to write down the whole particulars about Treasure Island. From the beginning to the end, keeping nothing back but the bearings of the island, and that only because there is still treasure not yet lifted. I take up my pen in the year of grace 17 underscore and go back to the time when my father kept the Admiral Binbo in and the brown old seaman <clears throat> with the fine saber cut first took up his lodging under our roof. Yes, I remember him as if it were yesterday as he came plodding to the indoor, his seed chest following behind in, in behind him in a hand barrow. Wheelbarrow? Hand barrow? A tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man. His terry pigtails falling over his sh pig what? All right. falling over his shoulders of his soiled blue coat. His hands ragged and scarred with black broken nails and the saber cut across one cheek. A dirty, livid white. I remember him looking round the cover and whistling to himself as he did so. And then breaking out in that old sea song that he sang so often afterwards. Oh, wow. Is this where it comes from? Fifteen men on the dead man's chest. Yo-ho-ho. Ho, in a bottle of rum. Except this is Billy Connolly, isn't it? Because this is, um, this is Bilbo. Is it? Bilbo. God damn it. Um, is it? What the fuck is it? I can't remember. Who gives a shit? Um, in the high, old, tottering voice that seemed to have been tuned and broken at the capstan bars. Then he rapped on the door with a bit of stick like a hand spike that he carried. And when my father appeared, he called roughly for a glass of rum. This... Uh, when it was brought to him, he drank slowly like a connoisseur lingering on the taste and still looking about him at the cliffs and up at our signboard where we keep the signage. This is a handy cove, he said at length, and a pleasant city crog shop. Much company, mate? My father told him, no, very little company. The more was the pity. Well then, he said, this is the berth for me. Here are your mate. He cried to the man who trundled the barrow. I need a, I need, so I have a, I have a trick. Uh, for getting voices right when it comes to stuff like this. And it's a, it's a little key phrase uh, for Mad-Eye Moody. It was, um, what are you buying? Uh, you know, what are you selling? That kind of shit. And uh, I think for this book, it's going to be, yar! <laughs> um, he cried to the man who trundled the barrow, bring up alongside and help up me chist. I'll stay here on a bit. They're all going to turn into dwarves. Uh, anyway, I'm a plain man. Rum and bacon. And eggs is what I want. And that head up there is for to watch ships off. What do you mock me call? You mock me call a captain. Oh, I see what you're at there. And he threw down three or four gold pieces on the threshold. You can tell me when I've worked through that, he said, looking as fierce as a commander. And indeed, as bad as his clothes were, and coarsely as he spoke, he had none of the German appearance of a man. Sorry, I read it as it comes. There's just, for some reason, there's the word German in the middle of my PDF in blue font. He had none of the... German. Appearance is a man who sailed before the mast, but seemed like a mate or a skipper accustomed to be obeyed or the strike. 
The man who came with the bearer told us that the mail had set him down the morning before at the Royal George, that he had inquired what inns there were along the coast, and hearing ours well spoken of, I suppose, and described as lonely, had chosen it from the others for his place of residence. And that was all we could be, uh, we could learn from our guest, who is a very simple man by custom. All day he hung around the cove or upon the cliffs with a brass telescope. All evening he sat in a corner of the parlor next to the fire and drank rum and water very strong. Mostly he would not speak when spoken to, only look up sudden and fierce and blow his nose, uh, blow through his nose like a foghorn. And we and the people who came about our house soon learned to let him be. Every day when he came back from his stroll, he would ask if any seafaring men had gone by along the road. At first we thought it was the want of company of his own kind that made him ask the question. But at last we began to see that he was desirous to avoid them. When a seaman did put up at the Admiral Benbow, as now and then some did, making by the coast road for Bristol, he would look in at them through the curtain door before he entered the parlor, and he was always sure to be as silent as a mouse when any such was present. For me, at least, there was no secret about the matter, for I was, in a way, a sharer in his alarms. He had taken me aside one day and promised me a silver fourpenny on the first of every month if I would only keep my whether I open for any seafaring man with one leg and let him know the moment he appeared. Often enough, when the first month came round and I applied uh, to him for my wage, he would only blow through his nose and stare me in, uh, at me and stare me down, but before the week was out, he'd be sure to think better of it, bring me my four penny piece, and repeat his order to look out for the sea found a man with one leg. How that personage haunted my dreams, I need scarcely tell you. On stormy nights, when the wind shook the four corners of the house and the surf roared along the cove and up the cliffs, I would see him in a thousand forms, with a thousand diabolical expressions. Now the leg would be cut off at the knee, now at the hip, now he was a monstrous kind of creature who had never had but the one leg in, that, in the middle of his body. To see him leap and run and pursue me over hedge and ditch was the worst of my nightmares, and altogether I paid pretty dear for my monthly four-penny piece, four piece in the shape of these abominable fancies. But, though I was so terrified by the idea of the seafaring man with one leg, I was, <laughs> I was far less afraid of the captain himself than anybody else who knew him. There were nights when he took a deal more rum and water than his head would could uh, would carry, and then he would sit down, uh, sometimes, and he would sometimes sit and sing his wicked old wild sea songs, minding nobody. But sometimes he would call for glasses around and force all the trembling company to listen to his stories or bear a chorus to his singing. Often I heard the house shaking with yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum and all the neighbors joining in for dear life with the fear of death upon them and each singing louder than the other to avoid remark. For in these fits, he was the most overriding companion ever known. He would slap his hand on the table for silence all around. He would fly up in a passionate anger at a question and sometimes because none was put. Um, and so he judged the company was not following his story, nor would he allow anyone to leave the inn till he drank himself sleepy and reeled off to bed. His stories were what frightened people worst of all. Dreadful stories they were about hanging and walking the plank and storms at sea, and the dry tortugas and the wild deeds in the places of the Spanish main. By his own account, he must have lived his life among some of the wickedest men that God had ever allowed upon the sea, and the language in which he told these stories shocked our plain country people almost as much as the crimes that he described. My father was always saying in the, uh, the end would be ruined, for people would soon cease coming there to be tyrannized over and put down and sent shivering to their beds. But I really believe his presence did us good. People were frightened at a time, but on looking back, they rather liked it. It was a fine excitement in the quiet country life. And there was even a party of younger men who pretended to admire him, calling him a, quote, true sea dog, and a, quote, real old salt, and such like names, and saying that there was the sort of man that made England terrible at sea. In one way, indeed, he bade fair to ruin us, for he kept staying week after week and at last month after month, so that all the money he had had been long exhausted, and still my father never plucked up the heart to insist on having more. If you ever mentioned it, the captain blew through his nose so loudly that you might say he roared, 
and stared at my poor father and stared at my poor father out of the room. I have seen him wringing his hands after such a rebuff, and I am sure the annoyance and the terror he lived in must have greatly hastened his early and unhappy death. So this book is being written to us from the perspective of Jim Hawkins, who I don't believe we have the name of yet. Um, but that's kind of... So the fact that it gives us like the I'm putting this to paper retelling frame means that the narrator is writing this after the story has occurred which means the narrator lives through the story. You know how it kind of fucking ruins the magic a little bit? Just a little bit. This almost reads like, um, some of the, I think the original Sherlock Holmes stories were written from the point of view of Watson. Um, that's kind of what it reads. Cause you know, it's basically a diary is what we're reading here. Um, it's pretty good so far. I haven't gotten much in the way of like, building descriptions and we don't even really know what the the narrator looks like but because of just kind of the way it's written and it's depictions of treasure island throughout different forms of media uh including like fucking treasure planet which is so over underrated sorry not overrated underrated that's a great movie um except for like that last third when martin short shows up as a like a brain dead robot um that bit's kind of hit or miss um, but all the shit leading up to it, like the aesthetic of that, fucking beautiful. There's like giant space whales and shit. I love it. Um, Disney should take more risks like that again. Where the fuck was I? Um, all the time he lived with us, the captain made no change whatsoever in his dress, but to buy some stockings from a hawker. One of the cocks of his hat had fallen down. He let it hang from that day forth, though it was a great annoyance when it blew. I don't know what I don't know what the hat term for for cock is referring to but naturally you know where my brain went and um that's a weird looking hat i remember the appearance of his coat which he patched himself upstairs in his room and which before the end was nothing but patches he never wrote or received a letter he never spoke with any but the neighbors and with these for the most part only one drunk on rum the great sea chest none of us had ever seen open or the great sea chest none of us had ever seen open he was only once crossed well, that was towards the end, when my poor father was far gone in decline. That took him off. Dr. Livesey came late one afternoon to see the patient, uh, took a bit of dinner from my mother, and went into the... He had him on? All right. Went into the parlor to smoke a pipe until his horse should come down from the hamlet, for we had no stabling at the old Benbow. I followed him in, and I remember observing the contrast, the neat, bright doctor with his powder as white as snow, and his bright black eyes and his pleasant manners made with the cultish country folk, and all above with that filthy, and above all, with that filthy, heavy, bleared scarecrow of a pirate of ours sitting far gone in rum with his arms on the table. Suddenly he, the captain that is, began to pipe up his eternal song. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. I, this isn't the voice. I just like reading it like this because this is the same line that's in like Pirates of the Caribbean. That Gibbs says it. Drink. And the devil had done for the rest. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. At first, I supposed the dead man's chest to be that identical big box of his upstairs in the front room, and the thought that had mingled in my nightmares with that of the one-legged seafaring man. But by this time, we had all long ceased to pay any particular notice to the song. It was new that night to nobody but Dr. Livesey. And on him, I observed it did not produce an agreeable effect. For he looked up for a moment quite angrily before he went on uh, with his talk 
uh, to Old Taylor, the gardener, on the new cure for rheumatics. In the meantime, the captain gradually brightened up at his own music and at last flapped his hand open on the table before him in a way that we all knew meant silence. The voices stopped at once, all but Dr. Livesey. He went on as before, speaking clearly and kind and drawing briskly at his pipe between every word or two. Captain glared at him for a while and flapped his hand again, glaring, glared harder still, and at last broke out with a villainous low oath. Um, oh, fucking, that's uh, a... <laughs> How does he... It's like... Fuck, hold on. I'm trying to... I'm, I want to do the voices from My Patricia Rowan because it's my favorite. And I'm picturing Billy Connolly. And it's just kind of like a... Like a Scotsman. It's like... Oh, would you like a batch of the twiddly what it is? Uh, that's a line from The Hobbit. But it was like... um. Uh, fuck, what's the, what's the line? No one knows. Why Captain Flint... Anyway, I'll just fucking... Silence then! Between decks... Were you addressing me, sir? Says the doctor when the ruffian had told him with another oath that this was so. I have only one thing to say to you, sir, replies the doctor, that if you keep on drinking rum, the world will soon be quit of a very dirty scoundrel. The old fellow's fury was awful. He sprang to his feet, drew and opened a sailor's clasp knife and balancing open on the palm of his hand, threatened to pin the doctor to the wall. The doctor never so much as moved. He spoke to him as before, over his shoulder and in the same tone of voice. Rather high, so that the room all might hear, but perfectly calm and steady. If you do not put that knife this instant in your pocket, I promise upon my honor, you shall hang at the next... Aces? Okay. Looks like I'm googling a word for the first time in the audiobook. It's A-S-S-I-Z-E-S. Um, a court which formerly sat at intervals in each county of England and Wales to administer the civil and criminal law. In 1972, the civil jurisdiction of Aces or A's, I believe is how it's pronounced, uh, was transferred to the High Court and the criminal jurisdiction to the Crown Court. A's. As's. As's, I don't know. A's. Weird. All right, that's fine. And then followed a battle of looks between them, but the captain soon knuckled under, putting his put his weapon, and resumed his heat, grumbling like a beaten dog. And now, sir, continued the doctor, since I know... Uh, since I now know there's such a fellow in my district, you make out I have an eye upon you day and night. I'm not a doctor only, I'm a magistrate. But if I catch a breath of complaint against you, if it's only for a piece of incivility like tonight's, I'll take effectual means to have you hunted down and routed out of this. Let that suffice. And soon Dr. Livesey's horse came at the door, and he rode away, but the captain held his peace that evening, and for many evenings to come. musicians of all time one of my personal idols and heroes neil Peart, who was the drummer of rush pert Peart, however you pronounced his his phenomenal name that dude was a goddamn drumming legend and if you don't know rush uh i would recommend you give them a listen their first eight albums are all really fucking good which not a lot of bands can say um, that's more good albums in a row than Led Zeppelin and the Beatles have, in my opinion. Um, Rush is kind of iconic. If you wanted, like, one song to listen to, you gotta listen to 2112. It is just a goddamn masterpiece of a, of a piece of music. Neil wrote most of the lyrics to pretty much all of their songs. He was that band. He wrote the music, and he 
played the drums better than anyone. It was, he was just goddamn incredible. And I am made incredibly sad by his, by his passing. Um, he didn't have the easiest go of it on this turn of the globe, but he fucking inspired millions to play music, to write music, to listen to these incredible lyrics. And I was among them. I still am among them. I'll be listening to Rush for a couple of days, weeks coming here now just to do my bit to to honor his passing and his memory. And I just wanted to take a minute to recognize him in, you know, my my feel good podcast because Rush has brought me up in a lot of uh, times just with how awesome the music is and it inspires me. And I'm made sad by his passing, so I will I will raise my cup of tea to Neil who is a goddamn legend and may he rest in peace and be reunited with his family. Thank you for letting me do that. Let us move on to the next thing in the podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to this portion of the podcast. You joined me in the middle of my quest. At the beginning of the quest. Really, this the stage has been set in my mind, and I wish to see this quest through, and we're going to talk about it in quest form. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. I'm going to Costco, and I'm going to Costco on a mission, on a mission for a good night's sleep. I have had the same bed for, I mean, probably not even like two years, if I'm honest, um, and it helps with, it helps with some stuff. So, like, my my day job can be pretty physically taxing on the old extremities. And I got one of them fancy beds, what with the anglings, uh, so I could, you know, have my, my upper back be properly supported and therefore provide the relief that my hands need in order to not explode on me. So that was the original purpose of the bed, and it succeeds in that endeavor. But I realized like a couple of days ago that I cannot remember the last time I actually went to bed and woke up feeling rested, you know, and it's, it could be a number of things. Like, I feel like I've been getting sufficient sleep, but it's not, it's like, I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, it's not eight hours of solid rest. It's like three and a half and then a break when I wake up at like one in the morning followed by another like three and a half hours. It's not restful sleep. So my mission is to get fucking restful sleep. That's the plan. That's the whole goal. And so in that endeavor, I'm going to Costco to go look at some shit. Number one, I want a weighted blanket. Hopefully Costco has those. I don't know. I don't, I refuse to look it up because I want to go to Costco. Number two, I want some kind of squishy fucking thing to put on top of my mattress to make it kind of more pillowy, plushy. So some sort of mattress topper would be would be great. And number three, I need bigger sheets because my current sheets, my fitted ones, barely fit over the mattress as is. And if I get a mattress topper, them's fucks ain't gonna cut it. I'm gonna need some goddamn like king sheets or something like that. So I got I got a mission for three things and four if I can find them, uh, new new pillows, new new pillows for under my head bits. Um, so I can get rid of the old ones that just ain't cutting it anymore. Um, so those 
Those four things are what I'm looking for. And any other additional bedding thing that they might have that I might go, oh, this looks good. Um, I'll get that as well. Um, for the sake of this quest, price is no object because if it doesn't work out, I can just return it. So it doesn't really matter. Um, but that's, that's the goal. I feel like I need, I need things. I need, I need, I need things. So I want the heaviest weighted blanket I can find. 20 pounds minimum. I'd prefer 25, but I feel like if I have to get like a really heavy blanket, then I might just fucking special order that shit. Um, I just, I need to be squished from both sides. I feel like that'll, that'll go a long way to making this shit better. But especially getting something for the underneath the bed bit would be, uh, would be nice um, as well. So that's the quest. Um, now that the stage is set, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. We'll check in with the quest later on. Chapter 2. Black Dog Appears and Disappears. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move, gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. Oh yeah! Alright! Anyway, it was not very long after this that there occurred the first of the mysterious events that rid us at last of the captain, though not, as you will see, of his affairs. It was a bitter cold winter with long, hard frosts and heavy gales, and it was plain from the first that my poor father was little likely to see the spring. He sank daily, and my mother and I had the inn upon our heads, and were kept busy enough without paying much regard to our pleasant guest. It was one January morning very early, a pinching, frosty morning, the cove all gray with hoarfrost, the ripple of lapping softly on the stones, the sun still low, and only touching the hilltops and shining far to the seaward. The captain risen earlier than usual and set out down the beach, his cutlass swinging under the broad skirts of the old blue coat, his brass telescope under his arm, his hat tilted back upon his head. I remember his breath hanging like smoke in his wake as he strode off, and the last sound I heard of him as he turned the big rock was a loud snort of indignation, as though his mind was still running up Dr. Livesey. Well, mother was upstairs with father, and I was laying the breakfast table against the captain's return, when the parlor door opened and a man stepped in, on whom I had never set eyes on before. He was a pale tallowy creature wanting two fingers on the left hand and though he wore a cutlass he did not look much like a fighter i had always my eye open for the seafaring men with one or two legs and remembered this one puzzled me he was not sailorly yet he had a smack of the sea about him too i asked him what was for his service and he said he would take rum but as i was going out of the room to fetch it he sat down on my table and motioned me to draw near i paused where i was with my napkin in my hand come here sonny he says come nearer here I took a step near. Is this here table for my mate Bill? He said with a kind of leer. I told him I did not know his mate Bill. And this was for a person who stayed in our house, whom we called the captain. Well, he said, my mate Bill would be called the captain. As like as not. He has a cut on one cheek and a mighty pleasant way with him, particularly in drink. Has my mate Bill. We'll put it for argument like that your captain has a cut on one cheek. And we'll put it if you like. That cheek's the right one. Well, ha, I told you. Now, is my mate Bill in this here house? I told him that he was out walking. Which way, Sonny? Which way is he gone? And when I pointed out to the rock, I told him how the captain was likely to return and how soon, and answered a few other questions. Ah, he said, this be as good as German. Drink to my mate Bill. 
The expression on his face as he said these words was not at all pleasant, and I had my own reasonings for thinking that the stranger was mistaken, even supposing he meant what he said. But it was no affair of mine, I thought, and besides, it was difficult to know what to do. The stranger kept hanging out just inside the indoor, peering around the corner like a cat waiting for a mouse. Once I stepped out myself into the uh, road, but he immediately called me back, and as I did not obey quick enough for his fancy, a most horrible change came over his tallowy face, and he ordered me in with an oath that made me jump. As soon as I was back again, he returned to his former member, half fawning, half sneering, patting me on the shoulder, told me I was a good boy, and they had taken quite a fancy to me. I have a son of my own, he said, as like you as two blocks, and he all the pride of my heart. But the great thing for boys is discipline, sonny, discipline. Now, if you had sat along with Bill, you wouldn't have stood there to be spoke to twice, not you. That was never Bill's way, nor the way of such as sails with him. And here, sure enough, is my mate Bill, with a spyglass under his arm, bless his old heart, just to be sure. You and me will just go back into this parlor, sonny, and get behind the door and we'll give Bill a little surprise, bless his heart, I say again. I'm like two steps away from either Cajun or Foghorn Leghorn, and I'm liking this this kind of ambiguous of, of shit that I'm kind of settling myself in. It's fun, I like this voice, this is a good one. So saying, the stranger backed along with me into the parlor and we put behind him, put me behind him in the corner. So they were both hidden by the open door. I was very uneasy and alarmed, as you may fancy, and rather added to my fears to observe that the stranger was certainly frightened himself. He cleared the hilt of his cutlass and soon loosened the blade in the sheath. All the time we were waiting there, he kept swallowing, as if he felt what we used to call a lump in the throat. We don't call it that now. Now we call it a bump in the jaw. At last, in strode the captain, slammed the door behind him without looking right or left, and marched straight across the room to where his breakfast awaited him. Bill, said the stranger in a voice that I thought um, he had tried to make him, uh, I thought he had tried to make bold and big. The captain spun around on his heels and fronted us. All the brown had gone from his face. Even his nose was blue. He had the look of a man who had seen a ghost or an evil one or something worse, if anything can be. And upon my word, I felt sorry to see him all in a moment turn so old and sick. Come, Bill, you know me. You know an old shipmate, Bill, surely, said the stranger. The captain made a sort of gasp. <laughs> oh, fuck, um, <laughs> Yar, black dog, he said. And who else? Returned the, uh, and who else? Returned the other, getting more at ease. Um, uh, black dog, as ever was, come to see his old shipmate, Bill, and the Admiral Ben Bowen. Ah, Bill, Bill, we have seen a sight of times us two since I lost them two talons, he said, holding up his mutilated head. Uh, yar, now look here, said the captain. You run me down, and here I am. Well, speak up. What is it? That's you, Bill, returned Black Dog. You're in the right of it, Bill. I'll have a glass of rum from this dear child, and I've took such a liking to, and we'll sit down, if you please, and talk square like old shipmates. When I returned with my rum, he, they were already seated on each other's side of the captain's breakfast table. Black Dog next to the one sitting sideways, so I was to have one eye on his old shipmate and one, as I thought, on his retreat. He bade me go and leave the door wide open. None of your keyholes for me, sonny, he said, and I left them together and retired to the bar. For a long time, though, I certainly did my best to listen. Oh, no, this is, um... Do-do-do-do-do. Uh, this is, uh... Hawking's talking. For a long time, though, I certainly did my best to listen. I could hear nothing but a low gaddling. But at last, the voices uh, began to grow higher. I could pick up a word or two, mostly oaths from the captain. No, 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 an end of it, he cried once. And again, if it comes to swinging, swing all I say. 
And then all of a sudden there was a tremendous explosion of oaths and other noises. The chair and table went over in a lump and a clash of steel followed and then a cry of pain. The next instant I saw a black dog in full flight and the captain hotly pursuing both drawn cutlasses. The former streaming blood from his left shoulder. Just the, um, at the door the captain aimed at the fugitive one last tremendous cut which would certainly would have split him um, to the it's chin but it's with an E at the end of it. To the to the uh, hold on. Split him to the chin with an E. Chin with an E. Um, a backbone, especially that of an animal that appears in a cut of meat. Um, yeah, the backbone. It's also a boating term. A chin in a boat design is a sharp change in the angle in the cross section of a hull. Huh. I bet fucking Robert Louis Stevenson knew that. And that's why he used it. Had it not been intercepted by the big signboard of the Admiral Benbow, you may see the notch on the lower side of the frame to this day. That blow was the last of the battle. Once out upon the road, Black Dog, in spite of his wound, showed a wonderful clear pair of heels and disappeared over the edge of the hill in half a minute. The captain, for his part, stood staring at the signboard like a bewildered man. Then he passed his hand over his eyes several times as, um, and at last turned back into the house. <laughs> Jim! Finally, we learned that my fucking name is Jim. Jim! He said, Hurdam! And as he spoke, he reeled a little and caught himself with one hand against the wall. Oh, I get to talk as Jim. All right. Ah, <clears throat> oh, I wanted to be like, "Are you hurt?" I cried. Rum. He repeated, "I must get away from him." Rum. Rum. I ran as fast. Uh, I ran to fetch it. But I was quite unsteadied by all that had fallen out, and I broke one glass and fouled the tap. And while I was getting, still getting in my own way, I heard a loud fall on the parlor and running in behind the captain, lying full length upon the floor. That same instant, my mother, alarmed by the cries and fighting, came running downstairs to help me. Between us, we raised his head. He was breathing very loud and hard, but his eyes were closed and his face was a horrible color. Deary, dear me, cried my mother. What a disgrace upon the house and your poor father sick. In the meantime, we had no idea what to do to help the captain nor any other thought, uh, but that he had got his death hurt in the scuffle with the stranger. I got to uh, the room to be sure and we tried to put it down his throat, but his teeth were tightly shut and his jaw was strong as iron. There was a happy relief for us when the door opened and Dr. Livesey came in on his visit to my father. Oh, doctor, we cried. What shall we do? Where is he wounded? Wounded? A fiddlestick's end, said the doctor. No more wounded than you or I. The man has had a stroke, as I warned him. Now, Mrs. Hawkins, just run upstairs to your husband and tell him, if possible, nothing about it. For my part, I must do my best to save this fellow's trebly worthless life. Jim, you get me a basin. When I got back with the basin, the doctor ordered ripped up the captain's sleeve and exposed his great sinewy arm. It was tattooed in several places. He has like a fair wind. Um, here's luck, and a fair wind, and Billy Bones is fancy were very neatly and clearly executed on his forearm. And under the shoulder, there was a great sketch of the gallows and a man hanging from it, done, as I thought, with great spirit. Huh. Prophetic, said the doctor, touching this picture on his arm. And now, Master Billy Bones, if that be your name, we'll have a look at the color of your blood. Jim, he said, are you afraid of blood? No, sir. I said, that's gonna, it's gonna be like a high pitch, like a, <laughs> it's the fucking bit from, uh, like, like, it was a game, Grimms, where it's like, Father, we have to go parachuting today, Father. But there's but one parachute, and it is far too large for my little body, Father. Are we to share? <laughs> that that's that's Jim. That's Jim Hawkins. So he's a little kid. This is a coming of age story. What do you want from me? Well then, he said, you hold the basin. And with that, he took his lancet and opened a vein. A great deal of blood was taken before uh, the captain opened his eyes and looked mistily about him. First, he recognized the doctor with an unmistakable friend. Then he glanced, fell upon me, and he looked relieved. But suddenly, his color changed, and he raised, uh, tried to raise himself, crying, "Where's Black Dog?" There's no black dog here, said the doctor, except what you have on your back. You've been drinking rum, you've had a stroke, precisely as I told you. And I have just very much against my will dragged your head foremost out of the grave. Now, Mr. Bones... That's not my name, he interrupted. 
Much I care, returned the doctor. It is the name of a buccaneer of my acquaintance, and I call you by it for the sake of shortness. And what I have to say uh, to you is this. One glass of rum won't kill you, but if you take one... Uh, but if you take one, you'll take another and another, and I stake my wig. If you don't break off short, you'll die. Do you understand that? Die, or go to your own place like the man in the Bible. Come now, make an effort. I'll help you to your bed for once. Between us, with much trouble, we managed to hoist him upstairs and laid him on his bed, where his head fell back on the pillow as almost as if he was fainting. Of course he is fainting. He's just bleeding constantly. Fucking stop that. Don't bleed wounds, you dumbass old doctors. Now, mind you, said the doctor, I clear my conscience. The name of rum for you is death. And with that, he went off to see my father, taking me with him by the arm. This is nothing, he says as soon as he closed the door. I have drawn blood enough to keep him quiet a while. He should lie for a week where it is. That is the best thing for him, and you, but another stroke would settle. Part two of the quest. It is now 9.30 at night. I deem it to be late enough to actually give this a shot. I got two new pillows, a three-inch plushy mattress topper, and a 15-pound weighted blanket. The idea being I'm squished on both sides, and I've got new pillows for underneath my head, my head parts. And um, I'm hopeful that all these powers combined equal a really good night's sleep. So in order to really peel back the kimono on this one, I'm going to set you down, and I'm going to climb into bed. Let me just put my chair back against the desk here. There. Okay. I should probably also shut it off for the night. Hold on. Okay. Let me power down the computer. Okay. I want my brand new here I'll do I'll do a combination of old pillow and new pillow. That one over there. Okay. Shit's been pulled back. Oh, I also hold on. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I needed to get my uh, adjustable bed remote. Let me just make sure this is pulled nice and tight. Okay. Here we go. I'm sitting in the bed. Ooh. Okay, that's a much deeper sink than before, which makes sense because it's an extra three inches of fluff. Pillows are good. Swing the legs up. Ooh. Oh, oh this feels pretty good. Okay. Now I gotta pull the comforter back over. Okay, and this weighted blanket. Ugh. 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 Yeah, I think this is gonna work out just right. Okay, I'm already starting to fall asleep, so we're gonna call this a success. And uh. So, talk to you guys in the next podcast. Chapter 3 The Black Spot. 
By noon, I had stopped at the captain's door with some cooling drinks and medicines. He was lying very much as we had left him, only a little higher. He seemed both weak and excited. Jim, he said, you're the only one here that's worth anything. And you know I've always been good to you. Never a month, but I've given you a silver fourpenny for yourself. And now you see me, I'm pretty low and deserted by all. And Jim, you'll bring me one noggin of rum now, won't you, me? <laughs> Father, the doctor, I began, but he broke in, cursing the doctor in a feeble voice, but heartily. Doctors is all swamps, he said. And that doctor there, why? What do he know about seafaring men? I've been in places as hot as pitch, made dropping that round with yellow jack, and the blessed land are heaving like the sea with earthquakes. What do doctor know to lands like that? And I lived on the rum, I tell you. It's been meat and drink and man and wife to me. And if I'm not to have made rum now, I'm a poor old husk on a lee shore and my blood will be on you, Jim. And that doctor swab. And he ran on again for a while with curses. Look, Jim, how my fingers fidges. He continued in the pleading tone. I can't keep him still, not I. I'm not a drop this blessed day. That doctor's a fool, I tell you. But I'll have a drain on the Jim. I'll have the horrors. And I've seen some already. I've seen old Flint in the corner there behind you as plain as the print. I've seen him. And if I get the horrors, I'm a man that's lived rough. And I'll raise Cain. Your doctor himself says one glass won't hurt me. I'll give you a golden guinea for noggin, Jim. He was growing more and more excited, and this alarmed me for my father. It was very low that day and needed quiet. Besides, I was reassured by the doctor's words now quoted to me that rather offended by the offer of a bribe. I... Father, I want none of your money. I, I said. But for you, my father, I'll get you one glass, but no more. When I brought him to it, he seized it greedily and drank it out. Aye, he said. That's some better, sure enough. And now, matey, did the doctor say how long I was to lie here in this old berth? A week at least. I said, Thunder! He cried, Awake! I can't do that! They'll have the black spawn on me by then! The lovers is going about to get the wind on me this blessed moment! Lovers as couldn't keep what they got! And what the nail what is another's? Is that sea manly behavior now I want to know? But I'm saving a soul! I've never wasted good money of mine! No lost it neither! And I'll trick him again! I'm not afraid of him! I'll shake him out another reef mate and down on him again! German. And he was thus speaking. He had risen from his bed with great difficulty, holding to my shoulder with a grip that almost made me cry out, moving <clears throat> his legs like so much dead weight. His words, speared as they were in meaning, contrasted sadly with the weakness of the voice in which they were uttered. He paused when he got into a sitting position on the edge. That doctor's done me, he murmured. My ears is singing. Lay me back. Before I could do much to help me, I had fallen back into his former place where he lay silent for a while. Jim, he said at length, you saw the seafaring man today. Black, black dog, I asked. Ah, the black dog, he says. Hey, he's a bad one. But there was worse put on him. Now, if I can't go away, no how. They'll tip the black spot, mind you, into me old sea chest thereafter. You don't get on a horse. You can't, can't you? Well, then, you get on a horse and go to... Well, yes, I will. That eternal doctor swab. And tell him to pipe all hands, magistrates and sitch, and lay him aboard the armor of Benbow. All, all Flint's crew, man and boy, all that's left of them. I was first mate. I was old Flint's first mate. And I was the only one as knows the place. He gave it to me in Savannah, where he lay a dying like as if I were to know now, you see. But you won't peach unless they get the black spot on me. And unless you see that black dog again or a seafaring man with one leg, Jim. Him above all. But but what's the black spot, Captain? Yes. That's a summons, mate. I'll tell you if they get that. But you keep your weather eye open, Jim, and I'll share with your equals upon me honor. He wandered a little longer, his voice growing weaker. But as soon as I'd given him his medicine, which he took like a child with the remark, If ever a sea man wanted drug, it's me. He fell at last into a heavy swoon-like sleep in which I left him. 
what I should have done. Oh, by the way, in case, if you didn't understand any of that shit he was fucking saying, I'm right there with you. It's, there's a lot of like fucking, uh, accent writing in that passage. Not a fucking clue. We're just going to keep rolling with it. We've all seen treasure, whatever. It's fine. We get it. Fucking, you know, one legged man. Billy Connolly is about to die. It's, it's all fine. What I should have done all the way. Well, I don't know. Probably I should have told the whole story to the doctor, for I was in mortal fear lest the captain should repent his confessions and make an end of me. But as things fell out, my poor father died quite suddenly that evening, which put all other matters uh, on one side. Our natural distress, the visits of the neighbors, the arranging of the funeral, and all the work in the end to be carried out in the meanwhile kept me so busy that I had scarcely time to think of the captain, far less to be afraid of him. He got downstairs next morning to be sure, and he had his murals as usual, though he ate a little and had more. Um, he ate little and had more, I'm afraid, than his usual supply of rum, for he had helped himself out of the bar, scowling and blowing through his nose, and no one dared to cross him. On the night before the funeral, he was as drunk as ever, and it, uh, it was shocking in that house morning to hear him singing away in his ugly old sea songs, but weak as he was, we were all in fear of the for death of him, and the doctor was suddenly taken up with a case many miles away and was never near the house after my father's death. I have said the captain was weak, and it did. He seemed to rather grow weaker than regain his strength. He clambered up and downstairs, went from the parlor to the barn, backing and sometimes put his nose out the door to smell the sea, holding onto the walls as he went to support and breathing hard as fast like a man on a steep mountain. He never particularly addressed me, and it is my belief that he had as good as forgotten his confidences, but his temper was more flighty, allowing for his bodily weakness more violent than ever. He had an alarming way now, when he was drunk, of drawing his cutlass and laying it bare before him on the table. But with all that, he minded people less and seemed to shut up in his own thoughts and rather wandering. Once, for instance, to our extreme wonder, he piped up to a different air, a king of country love song that he must have learned in his youth before he had begun uh, before he had begun to follow the sea. So things passed until the day after the funeral, about three o'clock of a bitter, foggy, frosty afternoon. I was standing at the door for a moment, full of sad thoughts about my father, when I saw somebody drawing slowly nearer along the road. He was plainly blind, for he tapped before him with a stick and wore a great green shade over his eyes and nose, and he was hunched with all, as if with age or weakness, and wore a huge old tattered sea cloak with a hood that made him appear positively deformed. Never in my life a more dreadful looking figure. Never I had I never saw in my life a more dreadful looking figure. He stopped a little from the inn, raising his voice in an old sing song voice, addressed to the air in front of him. Will any kind friend inform a poor blind man who has lost the precious sight of his eyes in the gracious defense of his native country, England, and God bless King George, where or in what part of this country he may be now? You, you are at the Admiral Benbow, Black Hill Cove, my good man, I said. I hear a voice, he said, a young voice. Will you give me your hand, my kind young friend? and lead me in i held out my hand and the horrible soft-spoken eyeless creature gripped it in a moment like a vice i was so startled that i struggled to withdraw but the blind man pulled me close to him with a single action of his arm now boy he said take me into the captain sir i said upon my word i dare not oh he sneered that's it take me in straight or i'll break your arm and he gave it as he spoke a wrench that made me cry sir sir i said it isn't it is for yourself, I mean. The captain is not what he used to be. He sits with a drawn cutlass. Another gentleman. Come now, march, he interrupted. Never heard a voice so cruel and cold and ugly as that blind man's. It cowed me more than the pain, and I began to obey him at once, walking straight in the door and towards the parlor, where our old stick, uh, where our sick old buccaneer was sitting dazed with rum. The blind man clung close to me, holding me in one iron fist and leaning almost more of his weight on me than I could carry. 
Lead me straight up to him, and when I'm in view, cry out, Here's a friend for you, Bill. If you don't, I'll do this. And with that, he gave me a twitch that I thought would have made me faint. Between this and that, I was so utterly terrified of the blind beggar that I forgot my terror of the captain. And as I opened the parlor door, it cried out the words he had ordered in a trembling voice. The poor captain raised his eyes, and, I, and I, at one look, the rum went out of him and left him staring sober. The expression on his face was not so much of terror as mortal sickness. He made a movement to rise, but I do not believe he had enough force to leave his body. Now, Bill, sit where you are, said the beggar. If I can't see, I can hear a finger stirring. Business is business. Hold out your left hand, boy. Take his left hand by the wrist and bring it near my right. We both obeyed him to the letter, and I saw him pass something from the hollow of his hand that held a stick in his palm to the captain's, which closed on it instantly. And now that's done, said the blind man. And at the words, he suddenly left me with an incredible accuracy and nimbleness, skipped out of the parlor and into the road, where, as I stood motionless, I could hear a stick go tap-tap-tapping into the distance. It was some time before either I or the captain seemed to gain our senses, but at length, and about at the same time, I released his wrist, which I was still holding, and he drew in his hand to look sharply into his palm. Ten o'clock! He cried. Six hours! We'll do them yet! And he sprang to his feet. Even as he did so, he reeled and put his hand to his throat, stood swaying from him, and then with a peculiar sound, fell from his whole height, face foremost to the floor. I ran to him at once, calling to my mother, but haste was all in vain. The captain had been struck dead by a thundering apoplexy. It was a curious thing to understand, for I had never certainly liked the man, though of late I had begun to pity him. But as soon as I saw that he was dead, I burst into a flood of tears. It was the second death I had known, and the sorrow of the first was still fresh in my heart. Alrighty, gang. It has been three? No. Has it been only three nights? I think it's been three nights of me sleeping in my new, wonderful, squishy, heavenly setup. And um, I think it's a success, to be honest with you. Because the bed's super squishy and it's super comfortable. And all I want to do right now is climb into it. Um, the 15-pound blanket is actually... Um, I was a little worried it'd be like claustrophobic, um, because of the excess weight, but I think it, I think the 15 pounds is light enough that I don't feel that way. I feel the gentle weight of it, but I don't feel like it's suffocating me in the night. So that is really nice. It's a, it's a Pendleton blanket. Um, the cover is machine washable and it separates from the weights, which is really nice. And the way the blanket is constructed, the weights are very evenly distributed throughout the entire blanket and are designed in such a way that they're tiny pockets. Like it's never going to like all the bees are going to shift to one side. That's never going to happen with this blanket. So I'm, I'm very pleased with it. And the three inch mattress topper um, is very soft and the pillows are really great. So yeah, I think on all, all I did pretty dang well. And tomorrow, actually, um, like tonight leading into tomorrow, represents the first time I will have the ability to sleep in in my new bed. So I'm very much looking forward to that. But yeah, if you're having trouble sleeping, um, just just revamp it, you know? Get some, get some new gear. Get a new weighted blanket. Get a mattress topper. Like, these things last a really long time. So I know it might seem a little pricey going in, but I promise you... Those things are going to make a goddamn difference in how you sleep and stuff. Plus, I would recommend getting an adjustable frame because fucking the world is rough and you, there's lots of stresses in this world. And the one goddamn thing you everybody should invest in is a comfortable bed. A bed that you love. 
You want to be able to crawl into your bed and be content like instantly. So invest. It's worth it. Trust me. Um, But I am going to enjoy my new fucking bed and we're going to get back to the podcast. Chapter four, the sea chest. I lost no time, of course, in telling my mother all that I knew and perhaps should have told her long before. And we ourselves and we saw ourselves at once in a difficult and dangerous position. Some of the man's money, if he had any, was certainly due us, but it was not likely that our captain's shipmates, and above all the two specimens seen by me, Black Dog and the Blind Beggar, would be inclined to give up their booty in payment for the dead man's debts. The captain's orders to mount at once and ride for Dr. Livesey would have left my mother alone and unprotected, which was not to be thought of. Indeed, it seemed impossible for either of us to remain much longer in the house. The fall of coals in the kitchen grid, the very ticking of the clock, filled us with alarms. The neighborhood to our ears seemed haunted by the approaching footsteps, what between the dead body of the captain on the parlor floor and the thought of that detestable blind beggar hovering near at hand and ready for the return. There was moments when, as the saying goes, I jumped in my skin for terror. That's a saying? As the saying? Oh, of course. Fucking not a week goes by, I don't say that. It's fucking so goddamn commonplace. Anyway. Something must speedily be resolved upon. <laughs> Sometimes these old books, like, that was the most complicated way he could have phrased that. Something must speedily be resolved upon. And it occurred to us at last to go forth together and seek help in the neighboring hamlet. No sooner said than done. Bareheaded as we were, we ran out at once in the gathering evening and the frost fog. The hamlet lay not many hundred yards away, though out of view on the other side of the next cove. And what greatly encouraged me, it was in uh, an opposite direction from whence that blind man had made his appearance. And whether he had presumably returned. We were not many minutes on the road, though uh, sometimes stopped to lay hold of each other and hearken. But there was no unusual sound, nothing but the low wash of the ripple and the croaking of the inmates of the wood. It was already candlelight when we reached the hamlet, and I shall never forget how much I cheered to see the yellow shine in the doors and windows. But that, as it proved, was the best of the help we were likely to get in that quarter. For you would have thought men would be ashamed of themselves. No soul would consent to return with us to the Admiral Benbow. The more we told of our troubles, the more man, women, and child they clung to the shelter of their houses. The name of Captain Flint, though it was strange to me, was well enough known to some there and carried a great weight of terror. Some of the men who had been in fieldwork on the far side of the Admiral Benbow remembered besides to have seen several strangers on the road and taking them to be smugglers to have bolted away and one at least had seen a little lurger in what we called the kit's hole for that matter anyone who was of a comrade of the captain's was enough to frighten them to death and the short and long of the matter was that while we could get several who were willing enough to ride to dr livesey's which lay another direction no one would help us to defend the inn they say cowardice is infectious but then argument is on the other hand a great german and boldener and so when we each had had said his say, my mother made them a speech. She would not, as she declared, lose money that belonged to her fatherless boy. If none of the rest of you dare, she said, Jim and I dare, back we will go the way we came, and small thanks to the big, hulking, chicken-hearted men. We'll have that chest open if we die for it. Now thank you for that bag, Mrs. Crossley, to bring back our lawful money in. Of course, I said I would go with mother, and of course, they all cried out at our foolhardiness, but even then, a not a man would go along with us. All they would do was to give me a loaded pistol lest we were attacked and a promise to have horses ready saddled in case we were pursued on our return while one lad was to ride forward and uh, toward uh, ride forward to the doctors in search of armed assistance. My heart was beating finally when uh, we two set forth in the cold night upon this dangerous venture. 
A full moon began to uh, rise and peered readily through the upper edges of the fog. And this increased our haste, for it was plain before we came forth again that all would be bright as day and our departure exposed to um, uh, eyes of any watchers. We slipped along the hedges, noiseless and swift, nor did we see or hear anything to increase our terrors till, to our relief, the door of the Emerald Benville had closed behind us. I slipped the bolt at once, and we stood panting in the, for a moment in the dark, alone in the house with the dead captain's body. Then my mother got a candle and bar, holding it... Um, uh, holding each other's hands, we advanced into the parlor. He lay as we had left him, on his back with his eyes open, one arm stretched out. Draw down the blind, Jim, whispered my mother. They might come and watch outside. And now, um, she said when I had done so, we have to get that, get the key off that. And who's to touch it, I should like to know. She gave a kind of sob that said the words. I went down on my knees at once. On the floor close to his hand, there was a little round of paper blackened on one side. I could no doubt that this was the black spot. Sorry, it's on all capitalized. And taking it up, found it written on the other side in a very good clear hand, the short message. You have till ten tonight. Yeah, till ten, mother, I said. And just as I said it, our old clock began striking. This sudden noise startled us shockingly, but the news was good, for it was only six. Now, Jim, she said, that key. I felt in his pocket, one after another. A few small coins, a thimble, some thread, and big needles. A big piece of pigtail tobacco bitten away at the ends. His gully with the crooked handle, a pocket compass, a tinder box were all that they contained, and I began to despair. Perhaps that's round his next. In his neck, suggested my mother. Overcome with a strong repugnance, I tore open his shirt at the neck, and there, sure enough, hanging to a bit of terry string, which I cut with his own gully, we found the key. At this triumph, we filled with hope and hurried upstairs without delay to his little room where he had slept so long and where his box had stood since the day of his arrival. It was like any other seaman's chest on the outside. The initial B burned on the top of it with a hot iron, and the corner somewhat smashed and broken as by long rough usage. Give me the key, said my mother. And though the lock was very stiff, she had turned it and thrown back the lid into a twinkling. The smell of strong tobacco and tar rose from the interior, but nothing was to be seen on the top except a suit of very good clothes, carefully brushed and folded. They had never been worn, my mother said. Um, under that, uh, the miscellany began. A quadrant, a tin canakin, several sticks of tobacco, two brace of very handsome pistols, a piece of bar silver, an old Spanish watch, some other little trinkets of little value and mostly foreign of make, a pair of compasses mounted with brass, and five or six curious West Indian shells. I had often wondered since why he should car have carried about these shells with him in his wanderings, guilty and hunted life. In the meantime, we had found nothing of any value but the silver and the trinkets, and neither of these were in our way. Um, underneath, there was an old uh, boot boat cloak, whitened with sea salt on many a harbor bar. My mother pulled it up with impatience, and there before us lay the last thing on the chest, a bundle tied up in oilcloth looking like papers, and a canvas bag that gave forth at a touch. The jingle of gold. I'll show these rogues that I'm an honest woman, said my mother. I'll have my dues and not a farthing over. Hold Mrs. Crossley's bag. She began to count over the amount of the captain's score from the sailor's bag into one that I was holding. It was a long, difficult business, for the coins were of all countries inside as doubloons and louis d'ors and guineas and pieces of eight, and I know not what besides, all shaken together at random. The guineas, too, were about the scarcest, and it was with uh, it was with only these that my mother knew how to make her count. And when about halfway through, I suddenly put up my hand on her arm, for I heard the silent frosty air, a sound that brought my heart into my mouth. The tap-tapping of the blind man's stick upon the frozen road. It drew nearer and nearer, and we sat holding our breath, and it was struck sharp on the inn door, and then we could hear the handle being turned and the bolt rattling as it wrenched without uh, being tried to enter. And there was a long time uh, of silence, both within and without. At last, the tapping recommenced into our indescribable joy and gratitude. Died slowly away again until it ceased to be heard. Mother, I said. 
Take the hole and let's be going. For I was sure the Boltador must have seemed suspicious and would bring the whole hornet's nest about our ears. Though how thankful I was that I had bolted it, none could tell who had never met that terrible blind man. But my mother, frightened as she was, would not consent to take a fraction more than was due her and was obstinately unwilling to be content with less. It was not yet seven, she said, and by a long way, uh, she knew her rights and she would have them. And she was still arguing with me uh, when a little low whistle sounded a good way off up the hill. That was enough and more than enough for both of us. I'll take what I have, she said, jumping to her feet. I'll take the square of the count, I said, picking up the oilskin packet. The next moment we were both groping downstairs, leaving candle by the empty chest. And the next we had opened the door and were in full retreat. We had not started a moment too soon. The fog was rapidly dispersing. Already the moon shone quite clear on the high ground on either side. And it was only the exact bottom of the dell and round the tavern door that a thin veil still hung unbroken to conceal our first steps of escape. Far less than halfway to the hamlet and very little beyond the bottom of the hill, we must come forth into moonlight. Nor was this all, for the sound of several footsteps running came behind, uh, running came already to our ears. And as we looked back into the direction, a light tossing to and fro, still rapidly advancing, showed that one of the newcomers carried a lantern. My dear, my brothers and sons, take the money and run on. I'm going to faint. This was certainly the end for both of us, I thought. How I cursed the cowardice of the neighbors, how I blamed my poor mother for her honesty and her greed, and for her past foolhardiness and present weakness. We were just at the little bridge. By good fortune, I helped her, tottering as she was to the edge of the bank, where, sure enough, she gave a sigh and fell on my shoulder. I do not know how I found the strength to do it at all, and I'm afraid that it was roughly done, but I managed to drag her down the bank in a little way under the arch. Farther, I could not move her, for the bridge was too low to let me down more than to crawl below it. So there we stayed, my mother almost entirely exposed, and both of us within earshot of the inn. <laughs> I think that'll have to do it for this week, and we will have to see what happens to the poor Benbow Inn next week. And Jim and his mother, will they make it out alive? Did Jim get the treasure map? Why didn't they take all of the cool guns that old, old Billy Bones had in his sea chest? These questions and many more might be answered next week, but I doubt it, quite frankly. But thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of The Going Upcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I, and I hope you enjoy the new book that we will be reading. Um, at this rate, we should be through it fairly quickly, to be quite honest with you. Uh, it will be a good read, I think, and I'm hoping it will carry us right through the winter. These cold, bristling months will be changed with uh, ships off to uh, you know, faraway islands and warm salt air and scurvy and terrible Tim Curry accents. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you all next week for another episode of The Going Upcast. Have a good one, everyone. <laughs>